G'day humans, welcome to the Safe Space for Dangerous Ideas, and this is an interesting uh, occasion to turn the tables a little bit on old Zeps, uh, and uh, perhaps uh, turn upside down the normal dynamic of my conversations on this show. But first, before we get to today's guest, great news, great news. If you signed up for the top tier of uh, my uh, Substack uh, patrons, if you're part of the elite community, a hero of sanity, uh, we called you, then your first uh, video webcam uh, cocktail chatter uh, with me is now on the on the uh, schedule. Uh, the weekend after next, uh, assuming that you're hear this, hearing this roughly when it drops, which will be uh, the 26th of March, uh, Sydney time, 25th of March uh, in the US and UK, we're going to gather together for a little, uh, it'll be a Sunday morning coffee uh, if you're in Australia, 9 a.m. Eastern. Sorry if you're on the West Coast. And that's uh, six in the morning. Uh, if you're in the United States, that means 3 p.m. Pacific and 6 p.m. Eastern on Saturday the 25th. Uh, if you're in Europe, that's 10 p.m. in the UK and 11 p.m. in uh, Western Europe on Saturday the 25th. Uh, you will get a, a you'll be emailed a Zoom link in advance. Uh, RSVP, confirm your attendance. Uh, it's reasonably small and intimate. We're talking about fewer than 20 people. Uh, so you'll get to know me and uh, we'll get to know each other. It'll be fabulous. And if you're jealous and uh, you want to participate, you want to come along armed with some stuff that you want to talk about, questions, thoughts, talking points, suggestions, you can bring it, baby, if you are uh, subscribed as a hero of sanity. You can upgrade your subscription uh, before then, and you will be welcomed into, into the fold. Um, if you are uh, a pre-subscriber to the Substack, if you got in early, and therefore we've assured you that you also have a benefit, which will be a kind of a video, uh, video-y type thing, this is not for you. That will, there'll will be a separate thing for that. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of you. So that will be more, more of a kind of a town hall thing where I do an actual live event with a guest and you're all participants uh, for the actual, like you're with me having a coffee or a cocktail and we're shooting the shit. That's just for the heroes of sanity, which is the top tier of the Substack. Uh, if you're not a paid Substack member, you, uh, you're absolutely crazy for not being an unpaid Substack uh, member. You still get benefits. You get a newsletter that has links to some of the best things that I've done on my ABC radio show, which are all kinds of interesting nonsense. Uh, and you you get access to, to special things as well. You just go to substack.com, uh, uncomfortableconversations.substack.com slash subscribe. You just put in your email. You don't have to pay anything. And then you're at least part of the community. I'm obviously not doing a very good job of selling that because if you haven't done it by now, I don't know why you're not pulling your phone out of your pants and doing it. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, there's there's no cost. So I don't know why. I don't know why. How, how valuable is the next four minutes of your time that you can't just do that right now? Uh, this episode, as I said, sort of turns the tables a little bit in the sense that I'm talking to someone who is more articulate than me and more intelligent than me and less woke than me. Uh, Coleman Hughes, at a startlingly, horrifyingly, terrifyingly young age, has already made a significant impact on American culture. And not through rapping, your rap music, uh, which is also something that he does on the side, uh, but mainly through uh, articulating a vision of a kind of a unity of American purpose and uh, and uh, a a pushback against the fashionable ideas of diversity, equity, and inclusion that have come to dominate cultural discourse in the United States and across the the Anglophone world, I suppose. Coleman has testified uh, in Washington, D.C. at a House Judiciary Subcommittee into reparations. He's not in favor of reparations 
uh, for slavery. He himself is a black American. He's of, of African and Puerto Rican descent. I only mention that because it's relevant to so much of what we talk about is relevant to, to race. And as I say, the reason this is interesting to you in particular, this chat, quite apart from the fact that these conversations are always fascinating, scintillating, uh, and uh, nary an episode goes by without it being terribly, terribly interesting. But this one in particular, because I'm, I quite often find myself in the position of the person being sort of skeptical of wokeism and identitarianism and identity, identity politics. In this case, it's the other person who's much more articulate than me, who's able to do a better job of pushing back at my own wokeness uh, even than I am. Coleman has written in Quillette. He's been published in The Spectator, in The New York Times, The National Review, The Wall Street Journal. Without further ado, and I will see you in less than two weeks. If you are a Hero of Sanity subscriber, please enjoy. The one and only Coleman Hughes. I had some great scrambled eggs and some sausage, sausage, some potatoes, some coffee. It's a breakfast of champions, Coleman. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I went on a like I'm not going to have breakfast uh, thing during the pandemic, and uh, in addition, How come? well, I I, I I put on I put on enough weight that I was like in the first year of the pandemic, and I was like, oh, I'm probably going to become a fat person uh, <laughs> if I continue this. This 2020 yeah. habit of Netflix and ice cream, right? And then I, in 2021, I was like, uh, we had a big lockdown here, and for about 100 days in uh, in 2021, while everyone was getting vaccinated, and I guess mm-hmm. I just I used the opportunity to get outside and exercise, and uh, yeah, lift some heavy things. And while I was doing that, I was like, changed my diet up as well. And the easiest the easiest way to shave off some calories is to not eat sausage, egg. Uh, what else did you have? Potatoes. Yeah. As soon as you get up. Because I don't really. So, so you didn't become a fat person, I assume. I did not become. In fact, I, in fact, the reverse. I became skinnier than I had been. Well, not skinny. I became a proper healthy weight instead so of. So I'm trying weight. to do. A, I'm trying to do the exact opposite thing. I'm trying to put on uh, weight, <laughs> which is something. I guess you know some people would be envious of of my situation, but I, I literally will. struggle to put on weight if I try. Yeah. And, um, why would you well, just to like put on muscle. Yeah. Okay. Like I, I struggle to take in enough calories to put on either fat or muscle. But again, uh, why would you try? I mean, just be, just be a skinny. Like there's uh, your skinnies are great. Everyone loves a skinny. This is true, but I kind of want to see how, you know, like how strong I can get. You've been watching Marvel yeah. movies and you've gone, exactly. this is what I need. I need to be more yeah. like Thor. Where exactly. is, why are these Chris Hemsworth and all these other Australians, you know, Chris Hemsworth, Josh Sepps, all the people you think of when your mind goes to incredibly attractive <laughs> Australians. Yeah. Why are they so buff? Exactly. And I call I mean, The answer is steroids, obviously, but. <laughs> well, in my case, Chris is pretty clean, but I, uh, when I say I, I get on the yeah. juice, I really go on the juice. Yeah. I have an IV drip of steroids into me right now <laughs> as we speak. Uh, yeah, I mean, can't you just have lots of, what happens if you have 140 grams of protein in a day and lift some heavy things two or three times a week? Yeah, I mean, I would struggle to get 140 in a day. I would. That would be like a horrible day of stuffing my fucking face 
<laughs> being just like That's bloated and do. disgusting all day. That's what the Hemsworths do. Well, probably not yeah. the little one, Liam or whatever his name is. Nobody knows that guy. But that's what the people who have a lot of muscle do. That's true. And they also do steroids. <laughs> but not all of them. But what I'm saying is you don't need to. Like yeah. I, my, no, I know. I know. I know trainers who are very clean and very into mm-hmm. like, you know, their body is a temple. Mm-hmm. And they have massive muscles, but they have right. a tremendous amount of protein and of lean protein and not a lot of fat. Yeah, and not, I just. And no carbs. No, not a lot of carbs. I just can't do it. I can get like three, at most three meals a day plus like a shake and I'm out. Yeah. So the problem is, this is like Ozempic now. The problem is actually, uh, it's human error. It's not that that your body won't put on muscle. It's that you're not giving your body what it needs. Right. What about another? I just like can't manage to stuff my face with enough... It's not that much. It's not that much. I al- I had almost 150 grams of protein yesterday. I yeah. have these little bags of jerky or like biltong, chili mm-hmm. dried meat that I sometimes like to snack on when I'm peckish. I had two 30 gram bags of those. I had a wow. protein shake after I went to the gym. Uh, I had tacos for dinner. There was, there was probably 30 to 40 grams of protein in like a meal of tacos. Mm-hmm. I used let- a lettuce wrap instead of a taco. Now I sound like a real health freak, but this mm. is just like uh, happened to be yesterday. And what else did I have? I might have had a what did I have for lunch. I must have had like a chicken salad or something for lunch. There you go. That's one hundred forty, something like that. Maybe one twenty, one thirty. Well, you got to get me on your diet. Like. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll bulk up together. We'll be beefcake yeah. together. Anyway, uh, thanks for speaking uh, speaking with us. Since we haven't spoken in a while, and I I, I guess uh, we sort of swim in similar parasocial circles, but don't know each other well. I'd, I'd be interested in in catching up with you about the water under the bridge of the past, maybe five, maybe three to five years. Like has um, just in terms of our culture, like when we have the benefit, some benefit of hindsight and perspective on say the racial reckoning and the social justice reckoning of the summer of 2020 um, and the changes that have happened to our understanding of diversity, what has been good and what has been bad about the cultural evolution of the past five years? Mm, So the past five years, it's 2023 now, taking myself back to 2018. I was on Columbia's campus halfway through my degree, uh, concerned and, and sort of perpetually aghast at the unreason in the culture around me, um, about the claims that Columbia University was basically like the Jim Crow South and black students experienced racism, quote unquote, every day on this campus, as one would read, felt like I was living in a world where the actual racism level was like a one out of 10 and the concern about it was a 12 out of 10. And, and I was very... pressing this very black and white view? Because what you always hear when, and I don't know the truth, when you broach these subjects is, well, of course the fringe of university campuses has always been crazy. I mean, they're, they're, 
they're nutters. They're not representative of anything. So, you know, someone's shouting really loudly through a loud hailer about how, you know, white supremacy must be destroyed. Well, go back 30 years and they were screaming about how, you know, communism is the is the path to the future and all that. I mean, these these crazies have always been there. So why overreact? Uh, so in, in my case, it was just a matter of my day-to-day life. So if if only 5% or 10% of students on campus actually held those views, which I thought were nuts, it was uh, they completely controlled the campus newspaper. Uh, they were disproportionately represented among professors and gen- gen- uh, generally feared as the people that would cancel you if you were known to disagree with them. So people, even though they were a minority, people would still disagree with them in private, right? People would have conversations. I used to, we used to joke that you used to kind of have to come out to your friends as not woke, not even anti-woke, just like not woke. You would have to have that moment where you and another person, someone broaches it first. Like, I don't think I'm really into the like woke stuff. And there would be this enormous risk that you're taking. And if it gets reciprocated, there's like this feeling of looking over your shoulder and having had a moment um, with someone. That's what the culture was like. So so my concern about it was actually pretty, it was pretty directly related to my lived experience of just like, can I be a person that says what I think and not get a reputation uh, or not become an outcast? Mm. on on in my day-to-day life um well you've got a reputation now coleman you've got a yeah. reputation as a scrawny little troublemaker uh right. <laughs> and what were the what were the view when you say that you'd have to sort of privately confide that you didn't necessarily agree with all this woke stuff because some many of those views were nuts what are, what are those views um that that so first it's like a philosophical framework which which says that all of the institutions that generally have defined American and Western societies, such as uh, f- markets, market economies, freedom of speech, the rule of law, um, and so forth, these are all not neutral values or useful constructs to build a society. These actually are slanted in principle, so as to benefit white, straight, cis men and to disadvantage uh, black people, other minorities, women, LGBTQ, etc. All of these things that appear to be neutral or even good are actually white supremacy and bigotry in disguise. They are built to benefit some and to disadvantage others. And therefore, they need to be not just like incrementally improved, but basically overthrown. And then also anyone who disagrees with this should be uh, cast out and treated like the religions of old would treat heretics and blasphemers. That's what I would call like the package. Because if you just agree with all those beliefs, but you're not for canceling anyone, then it's like we just have philosophical disagreements about the world and that's fine and good. But there's this added element of, of purging you know, purging any given space of heretics and disbelievers. And so what exactly does canceling look like? Because the, 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 the retort to 
purging places of heretics and disbelievers is we've always we've always drawn lines around what kind of people we tolerate in polite society. And it used to be people who said the N-word. It used to be in offices, people who slapped their female co-workers on the butts and called them toots. Uh, and things evolve, and then certain behaviors are regarded as becoming taboo. And if you don't want to be on the side of uh, white supremacists and bigots and people who don't understand the importance of addressing the concerns of marginalized communities, then yes, we are going to respond to your like archaic way of talking or way of behaving by excluding you from polite society. But that, you know, the fact that, I don't know, person X, the fact that, uh, you know, Scott Adams now doesn't have his, uh, his, his cartoon in a bunch of different newspapers is not canceling him so to speak he has tons of money he's going to be fine he it is a it is a it is the response of using our speech to respond to his speech and saying that you are not part of you're not expressing ideas that are acceptable in 2023 anymore just as we could have said the same in 1985 that you're not allowed to speak like you're still in 1925 in the deep south what's wrong with that uh, so there'd be nothing wrong with that if we could agree on the meanings of words like white supremacy, racist, etc. If we all agreed that Richard Spencer was a racist and racism is beyond the pale and we have like anything close to a shared understanding of those of of the um of what exactly is beyond the pale and where that line is, uh then maybe we could, you know, kind of make those judgments the, pr- the problem is you know l- literally everyone and their mother has been called a racist or believes something that could get them called a racist in the wrong circumstance and uh, i could i could cite chapter and verse on on examples where just totally reasonable and within the pale things have gotten people suspended fired etc well, give us I mean, a few for the normies who aren't so in this conversation. The the one example is I, I always forget the school. I think it's it may be University of Southern California, uh, but it, it's a school in California where a a business professor was giving a a talk uh, to to his students about how to conduct business in Mandarin Chinese and the kinds of phrases that you would use to sound native. And he used the the word uh, naiga, which is uh, it's it's a very common Chinese sort of waiting word, kind of like um in English. And when it's said fast, it sounds almost identical to the N word with with a soft a. And if you listen to anyone speak Mandarin, you'll you'll hear this word probably within a minute. And so he said it in order to help people learn how to speak Mandarin and was suspended from his job because a couple black students in the class um, were offended. Again, he he was not even speaking English. He was speaking Chinese and it sounded uh, like, like a, like a certain word. Um, So is that guy a racist? Should that guy get suspended or even punished for doing his job and teaching colloquial Mandarin? Well, I would say obviously not. I would say, it's insane that that guy was punished. Um, and But what allowed for that was an environment where racism is defined basically to, to mean almost anything. Um, 
I talk, I could give one more example. I, I just recently had this guy, Vincent Lloyd, on my podcast. Vincent Lloyd is a professor at Villanova, and uh, he is a, uh, he, he teaches religion and philosophy, and he is a, uh, he's very much woke in his philosophy. He's very much, you know, a critical race theorist um, who I have many substantive disagreements with. But his story is that he was teaching a class of 17-year-olds that got into the summer program, and he had done this before. And over the course of the six-week class, his TA, who was truly woke in the sense of a, a canceller, um, was upset that, on, in, that only four of the six weeks were dedicated to anti-blackness issues, the other two being dedicated to anti-immigrant and anti-indigenous issues. And she demanded he change the curriculum of his course so that every week was dedicated to anti-blackness issues. Eventually, the, the class broke down and they presented him with a list of demands and grievances, which included his body language being hurtful or endangering black students in the class. Now, keep in mind, he, he himself is black for whatever that is worth, and he's a total critical race theory adherent and still was not extreme enough um, to the point where this particular TA basically brought the class to a halt by force and, um, and just destroyed the class, ended the class because of her complaints about his lack of sufficient extremeness. Um, again, so is that guy a racist? I would, I would say the vast majority of reasonable people would say absolutely not. Actually, the, the person who was nuts in that scenario was the TA, and yet, and yet she won, right? Mm. I mean, so I think there are, that's key, isn't it, right? The fact that she won. I mean, yeah. I suppose it sounds like what you're saying is, yeah, there's always been craziness on campus. Right now, the craziness is taking a particular form. And the difference was that in past eras, perhaps the craziness was sort of quarantined in in its own box on campus and didn't bleed out to uh, to to capture the moral high ground that then even administration officials and, you know, reporters and media elites and other cultural institutions felt the need to essentially become loudspeakers for the, for the crazy. Um, yeah, look, I mean, yeah. Made- I mean, no, I think that that is a difference. There, there's a group on campus too, that is like the Christian group, for example, and they have beliefs about what is right and wrong, about what should be said in classrooms. And the difference is that nobody outside of them really listens to them. Um, nobody would be afraid to you know, criticize religion or Christianity because they don't have any cultural power. The administration isn't afraid to enforce neutral rules uh, or school policies on them. And... Um, even though their numbers may have been fairly similar to the number of students that were like truly woke. So it's not really about the number of adherents, but it's about people's ability to punch way above their weight because of cultural wins. And and so you you started by asking sort of what has changed over the past five years. I think in 2018, I was worried about this trend, partly because of where I happened to be in the country. I was in a hotbed of wokeness. Um, I think by mid-2020, late 2020, the issues 
that were alive to me in my life became alive for many, many more people after George Floyd uh, and after after the riots and everything. The the level of uh, wokeness in corporate America and everyday life it, it hit a lot of people actually for the first time. And, and so I felt that the issue I'd been worried about and had been sort of minimized for two years was no longer minimized and, and was, you know, really going everywhere. In the past two or three years, I think it's come down from that peak, but certainly not to like pre-2013 levels. 2013 being the year that the mainstream media began to, uh, began to channel woke ideas such as white privilege, systemic racism, etc. So the issue hasn't disappeared, but it's definitely come down from its peak in 2020, 2021. It's funny that you say 2013, uh, because I started at HuffPost Live in 2012. That was when it was launched. Uh, and mm-hmm. it was a big deal between, I guess, 2013 and 2015. Uh, it was the place to be. Uh, this 12-hour-a-day streaming uh, talk network, uh, of which I was one of the founding hosts. And there was a segment that I pitched and did in 2013 about the N-word. And I had a conversation with the executive producer about whether or not... I mean, it it was just me expressing as a foreigner living in America. So I had a regular segment where I was kind of just interview people about uh, have a panel about the the oddities that i notice in america i had one segment about like how insistent italian americans are at calling themselves italian american uh, or irish american when like nobody's been to ireland or italy in their family for the past 80 years uh you know but like i'm italian you're like dude you're not italian you're you're, you're a certain type of uh, sub community we get it but you've you've never been to italy and your parents have never been to italy so what is that phenomenon because that's uh, that strikes me as a uniquely american thing that we don't really do so much in other uh new world countries and certainly not in uh, in old world countries so this segment was about like me finding the n-word just a, a curious phrase like, what's it trying to achieve? Is it trying to elide the difference between using a slur in hatred and simply referring to the existence of the word? Are we being infantilized by the fact that we are pretending not to know the difference between saying uh, the N-word is the worst word that exists and you should never use it against somebody and saying, hey, N-word, bring me that cake, like that there's no difference between those two usages? So anyway... We had this conversation with my executive producer and I was arguing, I was saying, you sort of undermine the whole point of the segment if I don't just say the word mm-hmm. throughout the whole segment. Mm-hmm. We should just say it and like have a disclaimer at the front and say like, if this is a word that like you find really offensive, then just switch off. Thank fuck. He was like, just think about how it could look if someone did a, a mashup and a cut up and splice it all together and oh but no know, one would do that josh no no one would be so <laughs> and this was 2013 where it's hard for people now to remember but it was not a thing for everyone everywhere to be using the phrase the n-word correct yeah as recently as 10 years ago it was not a, a fireable offense it was not a you know it was not a crazy thing to just be using the actual word um I had never said the phrase the N-word in my life in 2013, seriously. I mean, only when talking about the existence of that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I don't think I was breaking huge taboos, and I don't think that my black friends were secretly clutching their pearls and were horrified. They seemed to still hang out with me when I, and maybe it's partly being a foreigner and just sort of getting a, a pass or something. But it was a different environment. And had I not taken the advice of the executive producer and refrained from saying that word, it's hard to imagine how I would be employable today. So mm-hmm. 2013 is a is an interesting an interesting point to in time to to point to as the beginning of an era of I mean I want to say chilling of speech and behavior but then the woke part of my brain just goes like what's new what's new I mean there is nothing more predictable than people complaining about young people's sensitivities going too far and the next vanguard of moral conduct being a bridge too far and like how do you how do you not wonder whether or not you're an old straight white man sitting on his porch railing at kids these days well um in what in what respect do you mean with the n word or or with norms with everything, in general with norms with just norms in general well at the end of the day i i think i don't really get too hung up on whether on the generational aspect of it because i think you know if you're talking about what's true in the world i don't care if saying something true makes me sound like an old fart or, or whatever. I think that's like really arbitrary. Um, as far as like norms changing, I, th- I would agree like, you know, the younger generation, at least in recent history in America, the younger generation has always set itself apart from the older generation by changing norms. That's not true. Like throughout human history, I think most places and most times like have been culturally stagnant for many generations at a time. But um, I mean, the question is, to what extent do those norms serve a useful purpose? And I think that can be legitimately debated in any circumstance. Like, how arbitrary would it be to agree with the new norms just because it's young people that are coming up with it, right? Mm. That seems equally arbitrary as complaining about change simply because it's change. I think some changes are good other changes are bad and the interesting conversations come in discussing them on a case by case basis. Yep. Right. And I guess one reason why we are predisposed to think of these new ideas as being good ones is because they're able to cloak themselves in the mantle of, uh, of a problem that we all agree, I think is, is real. Like, I mean, you mentioned Christian groups on campus, earlier and saying, you know, there is no, no one, nobody feels the need to take the knee before Christian groups and pander to their claims. But one reason for that, I would suggest is that nobody believes that Christian groups are actually addressing a question that we all need, that we all agree needs addressing. Nobody thinks that there is a, a deep need for us all to come to Jesus, uh, at the, at this point in time. But everybody basically does agree that there are lingering problems. Well, you may not, but most, almost everyone agrees that there are lingering problems of racial equality that still need to be addressed in Western societies, that racism is still too prevalent 
uh, and that we still have some distance to go before we can regard the job of racial justice as being finished, if ever. Therefore, the moment you can have this new vanguard of young idealistic people articulating policies and new norms that seem to achieve that goal, then it's hard to be a 55-year-old straight white male university administrator and stand in their way for precisely the icky, the sort of icky feeling reasons that I just articulated about not wanting to be an old old man sitting on his porch railing against the kids. Does that make sense? Uh, I mean, I, I understand it. I have a different view on it, which is... Um, you know, I think that I've been very opposed to racism my entire life. Um, and what, what, what's on offer since 2013 and, and woke anti-racist movement, let's call it, um, is really, it's a reconceptualization of racism as much as it is just saying we need to address this, right? It's, it's not just saying we, we all have to get up and work harder at achieving Martin Luther King's vision. It's actually presenting a different philosophy of what is and isn't racism. So the problem is I disagree with that philosophy, right? Can one you, thing can that you philosophy says, the, the competing visions here of uh, the Martin Luther King one and then the new one? So Martin Luther King's uh, goal with respect to race, he had goals with respect to economics and Christianity and, and other aspects to him as well, and pacifism and anti-imperialism, so forth. But with respect to race, his goal was to get closer and closer to a nation in which racial identity was viewed as insignificant. Um, he would say when, you know, we will not ask your race if you're, if you're, we will only ask if you're a brother in justice. He would say, as I look out, I don't see, I, I see black faces and white faces intermingled like a river. Um, he was asked about interracial marriage once and he rejected the term because he said, properly speaking, races don't marry, individuals marry. And then there is, of course, his famous, I have a dream speech of uh, little white children holding hands with little black children. And the, the underlying goal of getting less and less interested in race um, for, for every conceivable reason and opposing racial discrimination in, in all its forms and, and racialized thinking in all its forms and racial stereotyping in all its forms. In, in all its forms. That is a goal that I'm, I'm very much animated by, but that's a... a, a different goal than what woke anti-racism proposes. Um, woke anti-racism comes out of the critical race theory tradition, which was an explicit rejection uh, in some ways of the civil rights tradition. And early critical race theorists said as much. They said that this critical race theory grows out of a dissatisfaction with the rhetoric of the civil rights, of the mainstream civil rights vision. They think that it's impossible to be truly racist to white people, for example, um, and and therefore encourage all kinds of uh, you know 
frankly hate speech so long as it's directed in in the proper direction. And, um, and just explain that, that it's impossible to be racist to, against white people, not because it's impossible to be bigoted towards white people, but because to be racist, you need it needs to be the powerful actor doing the thing. Is that right? Yes. There's a there's a new philosophy, which this is not a philosophy that comes anywhere from the civil rights movement. Uh, it comes from the critical race theory critique of the civil rights movement, which is that racism equals prejudice plus power. So, And black people don't have power, allegedly, in America. So therefore, black people can't be racist. We can be prejudiced. I can say, oh, hey, Josh, I don't like white guys like you. I don't want uh, my daughter marrying a white guy like you, although with which, with you, that wouldn't be a problem. Mm. Um, I mean, <laughs> also, you're definitely not going to get any protein advice now. <laughs> that <way>. So, <laughs> so all that would count as prejudice, which is in the critical race theory view, a lesser evil than racism. It's also, it's perhaps not nice, but it's not the same as you saying analogous things to me because you as a white man have the power to keep me down in society and, white society in general has the power to to keep black people down so your prejudice is is backed by the power in some sense of white supremacy broadly and uh, Coleman, do you object to the to the underlying philosophical kind of conceit here or just the way it's being applied at the moment because it strikes me that to to assert that prejudice is worse when it's coming from a powerful group than when it's coming from a powerless group is not a, a crazy idea. I mean, if no, you I don't think it's crazy. colonial era, I don't think know, it's crazy at all. Yeah. But the, maybe the problem is now that if you actually look at the mechanics of what is permissible and what is not permissible in polite society today, you would have to say that it's the retrograde white guy who is in the position of least power to articulate views that may contravene the, uh, the kind of vanguard of moral thinking, and if you are in a, if you are either a minority, a group member of a minority, or a hyper performative, university educated white person, a Robin DiAngelo, say who uh, who proves themselves to be even more woke than uh, any minority is, then you can really express whatever prejudices you want and they're not they're not that bad because you're you're punching up when in fact you're actually on top punching down that's right and i think it uh the the greatest tool of someone that actually has power is to convince you they don't have power because then they claim underdog status and um that's actually very useful look no one would deny that for the majority of American history, white people have had more cultural power, more political power, uh, more more of every kind of power you, you could name. But the fact is, things have changed. Things have changed. And there is a group of people, you know, activists, professors, scholars on the issue of race, uh, experts in quotation marks, I would say, that will never admit in principle that things have changed no matter how much they do change i think that i'm actually m seeing reality more clearly in saying that black people have quite a bit of power right now at the time i'm speaking the mayors of the top five most populated cities in america are all black you have to go to number six to get the first white mayor 
it's interesting to note that that is the truth, that there is no level of political office that a black person hasn't um, inhabited. Um, there's like, what are we talking about when we say black people have no power? Um, are we uh, talking I mean, maybe we're... let me let me answer that and rather than treating it as rhetorical i think the answer would be economic wealth is still disproportionately held by non-blacks uh there is still uh an underrepresentation of black people at the highest echelons of american capitalism um i guess that would be, those would be the two that, that that when you talk about um economic you know the share of the economic pie blacks are getting left out right Okay, so if we're just going to talk about the share of the economic pie, um, or wealth in particular, certainly almost all of that wealth held by quote-unquote white people is held by the top 0.1% of white people. Um, I mean, do, do the others have power? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dubious construct um, because what we're talking about is really the wealth in... You know, like you could basically erase the top 1% uh, of wealth holders in the country, and then you'd be having a very different conversation. What about, you know, the the 70 or 80% of people that don't have that much wealth at all, right? And how how is how are they throwing around their wealth in ways that keep people, keep black people down? Um, I, it, it's a little bit dubious to me. But I would totally acknowledge on at the median, white people have more wealth than black people. Um, and, you know, Asians have higher incomes than whites and are on track to have more median wealth than whites soon. And I can guarantee you no one, well, few will take seriously the argument that white people are relatively disadvantaged with regard to Asians when, when they do surpass them in wealth. Um, I think there are many different kinds of power. Economic power is one of them, and black people as a group have less of it, no doubt. I would say cultural power is another thing, and black people probably have more of it at this point. Uh, I, you know, culture, cultural power is like the ability to um, to enforce the norms that your group cares about culturally. And black people, I think have been extremely successful at doing that. Two examples of which are the fact that blackface and the N word are now completely beyond the pale. Whereas 15 years ago, basically you could, you could do blackface on TV. Um, and as you said, you could say the N word. The fact is a certain portion of black people are just offended at baseline by those two things. And it's not about whether that offense is right or wrong. It's about the fact that 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 feeling has now been enforced as the norm for the whole country. That's cultural power when you're able to do that as a group. Basically, enforce your feelings as norms um, or the feelings of your group. Is it even the case? Do you think that this is predominantly coming from black people getting offended when they hear the N-word? Or is there a... Like, to what extent is all of this a consequence of the kind of critical race theorizing of in university, in academia, and white people trying to 
I don't know, be on the right side of history? And to what extent is it a bottom-up expression of black frustration that things aren't moving fast enough? That's a good question. I don't really have a neat answer to it, but my gut says it's both. I, I think it's both that that some percent of you know non elite not you know non decision maker top level decision makers um in the black community are offended by those things and that those are to some extent because of their historical resonances third rails and and very offensive to i'm not sure it's a majority but like definitely a a strong sect of the black community and then there's also the the sort of overeager white ally phenomenon, the person that it, you know gets more offended than black people do at any given slight, but who is themselves white and and is like the most eager to cancel people. Um, I mean, this is a, a big phenomenon. I think we've seen. So I think it's a it's a marriage of those two things. I wouldn't want to reduce it to either one. Yeah. And then, I mean, it's interesting. I remember thinking about 2013, like up to 2020. I remember posting something on Facebook that was like a meme that said, white privilege doesn't mean that all whites are better off than all blacks. It means that of all the problems that a white person faces, like racism isn't one of them or something like that. And... Mm -hmm. I thought that was a neat way of articulating what black people were trying to get white people to understand about the way that, uh, I guess, yeah, privilege operates and functions. And now in 2023, I'm not sure one could say the same thing. I mean, as you pass through life in big corporations and in government with explicit diversity, equity, and inclusion policies, it's pretty clear to me. I mean, my brother was talking to a very highly educated uh, Indian Australian woman, and uh, she was saying, sort of embarrassedly, like, "Of course, I can get a job absolutely anywhere in a way that you can't." Um, you know, and she sort of point, gestured to her face and her skin color. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my brother said, "Well, also because you're really good at what you do." And she was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, of, co- of course. I mean, that goes without saying." But the fact that we live in a climate where she had internalized the fact that her being a woman and her being a person of color were now an undoubted advantage, if you hold all other variables equal, makes me wonder whether or not it's even true anymore to, for that phrase, that phrase about white privilege. I mean, in a sense now, we're all in the boat of understanding that our tribal identity boxes are salient as we move through this world. And the scales have somewhat tipped. And if you're a perfectly equally qualified person of color, that is clearly now an advantage. So it's, it's not really just about, the, about who has the cultural clout to be able to say what they want to say and define the terms of the conversation. It's also in a practical sense, in terms of redressing that economic inequality, there are cultural norms in place now that will have to necessarily over time redress that inequality and the question becomes then how fast do we want to do we want to do it right i mean you know you it is now the case i also have another friend who works for a big pharmaceutical company and he's a senior executive but 
that company has an explicit policy of gender parity by a date that is so soon, I think it's 2026 or something, that in, in order to achieve it, there is just no point in applying for anything if you're a white a white guy like it's not going to happen uh they just have to they have the targets now that um that have put such speed around this that um that he basically he doesn't have a future doesn't have a doesn't have a professional future beyond where he is and i don't know how to feel about that i don't know whether to feel you know what there have been glass ceilings all over the place that have been unspoken and Cigar smoke shrouded old boys clubs where deals got made and people of color and women got excluded and the pendulum needs to swing back a little bit. And now it's, now it's my turn and we'll find some kind of equilibrium or whether I should feel the train to to justice has gone, has become completely derailed and deranged and has lost sight of the guiding vision of Martin Luther King and Gandhi and Mandela. And we need a serious course correction what do you think tell me what i should do well uh first of all the idea that it's your turn somehow assumes that you're uh, of one entity with the white generations that came before you which is a view that i reject um Hmm. you only experience your life in your lifetime right like in what sense is discriminating against you a payment or an undoing of the fact that your father or grandfather abstractly had benefited from some old boys clubs or some from some pro-white discrimination. Mm. I'm not I actually mean, especially, sure. Especially since they definitely never did because my, like on my dad's side, they were Jews who have been shat on also forever and were right. his whole family were exterminated in the, in the, in the concentration camps. Uh, so like, so, but even in the purest case, so, so, so that's one critique, yeah, which is right, that right. this whole thing is so messy and, and, and it assumes things about people's life stories and ancestries that are just so often not true because it's so coarse grain. But even in the purest case where it's like, you know, your grandfather was, you know, went to Yale and um, was a white Protestant in the 1940s or something and you know, went into advertising and basically worked at like Mad Men um, and benefited from all kinds of unearned privileges of that culture. I'm not sure how discriminating against that person's grandson in any sense undoes the injustice that happened some 80 years ago, right? I don't Mm. think that that is actually how justice works. Like it doesn't cancel out um, nor nor does doing something for me because I'm black and my 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 uh, ancestors were slaves uh, in America, nor does discriminating in favor of me cancel out somehow the injustices uh, that my grandfather say lived through. I've never really heard someone articulate a plausible theory of how that how that gets us closer to justice. Well, uh, let me try. I, I think you're framing it as retributive when, in fact, the goal is supposed to be that the retribution is an unwanted side effect of the lifting up of a historically disadvantaged community. So, I mean, I think I think you would have to take as a given 
something that you and I probably think isn't true, but you would have to take as a given that it's harder to get by in the modern world as a person of color than it is as a white person. And then if that's true, you look at the, the underrepresentation of people of color in positions of power, uh, political, economic, uh, corporate. Where's the underrepresentation in political power? That's not true. That's true. Not true in America. So let's talk about economics, I suppose. Um, and then you would have to say, or let's take, let's say, let's say females then let's take women. There is still, I, th- I believe an underrepresentation, a significant underrepresentation of women in positions of power, right? Political and business. Repre- re- uh, relative to how many women want those jobs or relative to the population? Relative to the population. Yeah. I'm not sure that's the relevant benchmark. But right. I, again, I actually don't know. I, I'm not going to speak out of turn because I don't study this, but I think the more relevant benchmark would be like relative to how many women want to be top politicians. It wouldn't, it wouldn't at all shock me if um, men as the more like kind of like power hungry, potentially narcissistic of the two sexes were more overrepresented among people who think they should run the world. Yeah. I mean, I then know. you start the the dig. The more you dig, the, the the messier it gets, doesn't it? Because then, the feminist would say, "Well, why is it that women think that they don't want to be in positions of power if that were true? And could that be because we have certain assumptions about caring for children, and certain assumptions about who's the breadwinner, and certain assumptions about what women ought to be interested in, and uh, you know?" So then you have all this cultural stuff. I guess I guess the original point I was sort of groping towards is if you're going to end up in a just society and you're coming off the back of hundreds of years of injustice towards certain groups, then you can imagine one of the tools that you would use being uh, sort of putting a, a thumb on the scales of elevating those groups and maybe even admittedly over-promoting some of those groups who are underqualified, knowing that the reason why they're underqualified is for all, of, all, all kinds of historical reasons that they don't have the same resources and they, don't have, they haven't historically had the same education and they haven't historically had the same access to the hallways of power. And so you put them in those hallways of power, perhaps without them having achieved all of the things that technically they're supposed to have achieved if they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And in so doing, you accelerate the... Uh, the march towards justice. But in the process of doing that, you're also discriminating against white guys. Therefore, the justification for discrimination against my friend who works at the pharmaceutical company is not that there's some philosophical principle in terms of it being just to punish him for the sins of the forefathers, but that he is collateral damage in an attempt to, uh, to more quickly redress scales that have been imbalanced for hundreds of years. I think the, uh, the the effects of creating that quote unquote collateral damage, like the harms of that in the long run probably outweigh the um, whatever benefits are accrued there. Because I mean, you know, there's an argument Shelby Steele has made, which is I think a useful way to frame this. Um, you know, before the 1960s, virtually every area of American society was racist and segregated. Uh, including, uh, you know, not just corporate America, but sports, for example, right? Like the NBA was excluded black people. Um, The uh, MLB, 
obviously famously Jackie Robinson was the first to break the color color line and, and so forth. And now we think of the NBA, for example, as a disproportionately black sport, as a sport that black people dominate, given that some three quarters of the NBA is black. Hmm. Um, but let's not forget the NBA was just as racist as everywhere else in society. What happened is that when they finally opened their doors, black people excelled at it, excelled at it to the point where it was not at all necessary to implement affirmative action, even though the rationale could be applied to any given sports league, just like it could to corporate America. You could say this institution has excluded black people for this long. Therefore, we need to put a thumb on the scale. Um, There are just many institutions you know, where black people didn't need um, the the thumb on the scale because it was immediately obvious that that black people excelled at, at those things. And then slowly those institutions became less and less racist um, over time to the point where it's hard to even imagine an NBA without black people. Um, but so what we're talking about in these other institutions is where where black people as a whole did not immediately um, outperform or perform to at the highest levels in these institutions. And the question is, do you uh, try to address the underlying issues and uh, in, in public education and in the pipeline such that you get an increasing number of, say, black neurosurgeons over time without having to rig the standards by which you judge neural surgeons to get that kind of true equity that exists in in many sectors um, in the performing arts and sports, et cetera? Or do you just get impatient and rig the results to where you want them to be, regardless of whether the people who cross the finish line are actually as qualified and skilled as, uh, as their white peers? Mm. Um, I, I think that that strategy is short-sighted. It creates um, a rational reason to expect that black beneficiaries, for instance, of affirmative action are maybe less qualified because you've judged them by a, a lower yardstick, right? You've created a reason for people to doubt the credentials of black people at the top level of any given sector. Um, and, uh, and so it's it's not it's not clear to me that the the costs outweigh uh, that that the benefits outweigh the cost of that strategy. It's interesting, yeah. I mean, the NBA example is easily explicable because even if you had a cohort of people who had fewer resources and inferior schools to the rest of the population, they can still play basketball and be interested in basketball. So mm-hmm. all of their all of their intrinsic kind of capacity for playing basketball is unimpeded by their economic circumstance or by discrimination. The attributes that you need to bring to the table to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, those really do need to be fostered by great schools and lots of resources and certain cultural norms and so on um, that are unavailable to to a cohort of people who don't have them. Um, so... Is there any compromise between the... Because the reality is, I mean, societies are complex. These issues are hard. It's really difficult to say, well, let's just keep on working at public school, at improving public schools 
and just be patient. Just sit down. I mean, the, the criticism would be, you know, you're telling us to sit up the back of the bus and sit down and shut up and just uh, take, be grateful for whatever we've got. Be grateful that we're no longer under Jim Crow. And, uh, you know, over time, very, very gradually, very, very slowly, maybe not you, but maybe your kids, but maybe not your kids, but maybe your grandkids or your great grandkids will finally live in an America where we've adequately funded public schools well enough that you can have a shot at uh, having a, an, a, a roughly a roughly equal rep- racial representation on the boards of America's top companies. Well, you can, I mean, that's one option, or you can take box B where we just do it right now and we make it taboo to run a company that doesn't have a proportional number of people of color on its board and bam. Yeah, but what, what has that achieved? Anyone, anyone going up for a board director spot is already in the top x percent of the nation and and is is not who we're thinking about when we think about who the state should intervene to help who this right and um, you know I, I i don't know i mean it seems to be a lot of the focus of of justice at the moment and equity like oh yeah but representation of people in politics on the boards of of fortune 500 companies the people the people up for those spots are already so freaking privileged they're they're not the I, like to me that is like the world's smallest violin type stuff when we when the fact that the board of some company is now diverse i mean this is this is this is absurd to me we're talking about people already in the top 1% of income and wealth probably in in most cases if you're up for that um these are not people who these are the last people in the world regardless of of their sex or gender who who need the state to intervene, look at their skin color and distribute racial spoils or gender spoils. This is it's it's, it's um to me it's a totally cynical argument on the point of people that are already doing that well relative to the median American to say, well, because of my race or my gender, I need such and such a dispensation. Um, well, I mean, okay, but doesn't the same principle and then, that I articulated hold and then to point to and then to point? Oh, well, does the same principle hold for for? Okay, so the, your 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 substantial point was about like gradual progress versus immediate progress. Yeah. Um. I so it it just depends whether the the immediate progress may not be real progress the the immediate pro i mean you you can't just push a button uh lower the standards for one race whether that is admissions to college admissions to a job uh criterion for a promotion just lower the standards from you know 18 onward for one race of people and say oh look we've gotten really immediate progress well yes but You've only done that by defining down, the by lowering the bar by which we used to measure progress. That's a, that's a false mm. kind of progress. Like ha, in some way, it's actually it's actually kind of a conceptual problem because, say, you are a social scientist that you just want to, you want you want to really measure to what extent, um, black human capital skills have increased or decreased over the past like however many years 
you need, by definition, a non-moving bar against which to measure that kind of stuff. But if you're moving the bar lower and then noticing more people clearing it, it's a, it's a conceptual, it's actually a farce to say that you've made progress rather than just lowered the bar for some people right. and not others. Right. So y- you can view this as immediate progress, but I'm more inclined to view it as fake progress. And it's, mm. it's progress that relies on our all, a, like a, a spiral of silence. It relies on us never talking about what goes on behind closed doors in university admissions, et cetera. It relies on the fact that a, a, a university's admission policies are allowed to be kept secret. Now, what, is the, what does the following thought experiment tell you? If every college student in the country on their acceptance or rejectance letter received an honest, full account of why they were accepted or rejected, including the racial component of, component of that, which is to say if, if my, my Asian friend got a, a rejection letter from Harvard saying, look, you had a great application, you had a great SAT scores, had you been black, we would have accepted you, but we have too many Asians. I'm sorry. Okay, so if everyone in the country got that kind of honest read of why they got in or didn't get in somewhere, I think affirmative action would probably end in a week. Hmm. Maybe not. Certainly, there would be enormous levels of dissatisfaction with the policy. So if you agree with that, what does it tell you that the only reason there is not that kind of mass mass backlash is because we don't get the honest feedback. It, it tells you that it's a policy that actually relies on secrecy in order to get consent. And in that way, it's not so different than um, you know, policies of torture during the war in Iraq where it's called, you know, they call it enhanced interrogation mm. and they don't tell the public about it and it operates on secrecy. So the public supports it, imagining that it's like, you know, not all that bad. And then you see the waterboarding and suddenly everyone's against it. It's like if we saw the waterboarding and we saw how people, and we're seeing a little bit of this with the Harvard affirmative action case and the stuff that's been subpoenaed, but you have people in back rooms at, at college campuses saying, you know, we've, uh, we've got too many of this race. We, we need, we need another of this race. And I've got one here. I've got, you know, an Asian with a, this score. And do we need any more of those? No, throw, throw that one away. You know, like the, how the sausage gets made is actually quite ugly to, to, to most people. And I think it survives precisely because we're, we don't look at it. That's interesting in the case of college admissions. It's less true in the case of uh, corporate America, where I think it's becoming more overt and more accepted and more understood that, that these considerations are made. I mean, they're made quite overtly in my workplace in the sense that after every show, after I mean, on my radio show, not this show, obviously, where I run things, but I work for the public broadcaster. And after every show, my producers have to devote time to filling out a spreadsheet, which itemizes the race, sexuality, uh, gender characteristics, uh, disability status, and so on of guests to make sure that, you know, just to match ourselves against aspirational targets of uh, diversity, um, it would be 
perfectly well accepted that if we were having a panel conversation on television uh, here about, uh, I don't know, Indigenous issues, that you would need an Indigenous face or multiple Indigenous faces on that panel, whether or not they were necessarily the best or most informed people about like the specific policy. Obviously, if you were talking about the lived experience of being an Indigenous person, then you'd need an Indigenous person. But if you're talking about, I don't know, the economics, the economic redress of uh, historical injustices or something like that, then it's possible that you could have world experts who do not hail from that particular community. But that is now, even saying that now is something that some people will disagree with and that, you know, could in five or 10 years become taboo. So I do, I do see shifting sands here where the march towards identitarian uh, equity is, is coming out from the shadows and asserting itself as, um, as a prima facie kind of good that we all have to get on board with. Yeah, that example doesn't strike me as problematic because, yeah, I, I think it it would be crazy to, even though it's happened in history, to discuss the history of an ethnic group without any anyone from that, any expert from that ethnic group there. Um, if well, it, may depend what you, said, it may depend on what you're discussing. I mean, obviously, uh, if you're talking about the history of an ethnic group, then you need someone who's who's experienced it. You don't well. No, that's not necessarily true. It's possible that you could have a historian of uh, of like Burmese, you know, ancient Burma, who is not himself Burmese, isn't it? Sure, definitely. Yeah. Um. Um. But in the more general case of like a corporation that I don't know, like sells M and M's or something random, um, to what extent is it actually important to have a person of X race doing? any given job. I'm just, I'm very, my, maybe my point of view is seen as radical now, but I can just tell you personally as a small business owner, my podcast being a small business, I will only ever get someone that is best for the job and I'm not looking at their race or their gender. And I would, um, I think that's the right attitude yeah. to have. And I would I mean, never demand that, that others, uh, I wonder if all of one. this also just comes from a disagreement or misunderstanding about the nature of human expertise, uh, which is brought into starkness when you use examples like a, a neurosurgeon, because that's something, mm -hmm. some, an, an area where we can all agree that you want the very, very best and that there is such a thing as the very, very best and that the stakes of not having the very, very best are huge. I think a lot of people, especially if they don't run businesses and haven't taken risks and are not creative types and are not shooting for the stars and don't have like the same sort of psychopathic uh, creative ambitions and aspirations as someone like uh, us may, that they sort of just see the world as being like people muddling through. And there's a lot of evidence for this. I mean, you know, look at the caliber of people who end up running our countries, for example. You know, these are not fantastic people. You can swap out one straight white guy in a suit for another straight white guy in a suit who comes from a privileged background and went to a nice school like they're not that great and there's, there's there is a lot of that too and maybe we're confusing the sort of boring pipeline of privilege to mediocre upper management jobs including potentially the prime ministership of a country like australia with the real rarity of be, being truly truly accomplished at what you're doing and and truly great and like how really rare it is to find someone who who has that sprinkle of pixie dust who is 
competent and empathetic and ambitious and like in any particular role it really does make a difference whether you get the best or the second best person uh and especially over time in a sort of natural natural selection kind of sense like if you're consistently getting the third or fourth best person to do something then the mediocrity multiplies over time and people who run their own businesses and produce their own artworks kind of know this instinctively in a way that maybe social justice activists and middle managers don't. Yeah, maybe so, you know, in, in my view is that people should be allowed to care about excellence first, if they want to, if whatever business you're running, if you want to be monomaniacal and within the bounds of ethics, pursue the very best person for every single job, I think you should be allowed to do that. And I think society is better off when um, we we allow people to do that. And when we demand the very best of our top decision makers, the fact that, you know, politicians and um, top decision makers, top officials are quite often mediocre, I think is not is is to me a problem right because you know the historical examples of really great leaders we tend to look back on and say well wasn't it amazing that we had abraham lincoln at that time in the country or or whoever it was and yet most of the ones we see around today seem to be mediocre well i think it really matters that we have as many excellent people and judge people based on on merit and don't settle for for second best. I mean, look, if you settle for the second best vice president because you needed your vice president to be a black woman, not naming any names, um, <laughs> what happens when uh, when the president dies? Well, you've just changed the course of history by not having the best person in charge because you wanted to, I guess abstractly correct for some historical injustice what is best i mean this this is that i'm not sure that's a great example it lands with me that like the presidency or the vice presidency because that is something where i do think it's legitimate for people to think about the role that that office plays in representing the nation as a whole and representing america's faith to the world and so on like there was something electrifying about election night in 2008 and it wasn't just because obama was so knowledgeable and so articulate it was like wow this has happened we've we've done it like it's happened america america's official face to the world is a black guy like what is best what is the best vice president i mean you know there, well, no, obama, all the candidates obama effect, are, all right. The Obama effect, I think, is an interaction effect between his excellence and his merit and his being black and and what his being black said about the population that elected him, ultimately. It says right. that right. It, it was a reflection of the American population. It's not that, oh, it's amazing Obama's black. Yes, it's amazing okay. that we That's elected right. a black man. Yeah, right, right. And 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 he would have been, if he were... Um, if he were black, equally black, but like far less impressive, he would have been a huge embarrassment to the world. Uh, um, 
and obviously Trump was in many ways a, an, an embarrassment in, in the way that he acted and represented mm. and held himself in the office. Um, Look, I suppose, I suppose best, I mean, in this particular case of Kamala Harris, best would, you would want best to include the possibility that the person could successfully win an election if mm-hmm. the current president chooses to only serve one term. Uh, so <laughs> the, the White House currently finds itself in a pickle with a very, very, right. very uh, old president who not many people are enthusiastic about and no one on the bench to replace him uh, with. So I suppose in that context, it was uh, it was a missed opportunity. But I just think there's a, there are so many considerations that go into what makes... And look, you know, did McCain's... Did McCain's choice of Sarah Palin have anything to do with the fact that Palin was a woman? Or was he, I don't know. I actually don't know the the history of this, but, and I was pretty young at the time. I was probably 12 at the time. But insofar as it was, that's, I mean, I I just, it, it, it astounds me that people are willing to settle for what is not the best when it comes to the most important jobs in, in the country because they are worried about what it looks like. And to some extent they have to be worried about what it looks, what it looks like in order to win. But in that case, it, re- it really seemed like a huge backfire when people heard her speak and doubted his judgment for having, you know, basically picked a, a woman um, or picked her because of whatever superficial reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I want to defend merit here. I want to defend that there are better and worse state crafters, better and worse managers. And although it may be difficult in any given situation to really pick out who is best, it often isn't difficult. And we shouldn't let these superficial qualities of the melanin content of my skin or whether, you know, the, 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 which gonads I have um, affect my decision to the, to, mm. to the best of my ability. I want to come back to, before we wrap, uh, um, cancel culture and Scott Adams, this whole Scott Adams thing. Do you, have you followed that? Do you understand what happened? Yeah, I think I do. Can you explain it to people? So, um, so Scott Adams is a, a political commentator and a fairly famous cartoonist who is responsible for the long running Dilbert comic, uh, much loved and widely syndicated. Um, he's been a commentator, I mean, for many years, and he was, I think, a supporter of Trump. Is I don't think that's too strong. He was hard word. to pin down. He would talk a lot yeah. about, he, he predicted that Trump was going to win. And, he predicted and, Trump was going to win. Trump was and a brilliant persuader. Yeah, he said Trump was a brilliant persuader. And I think he did have some insight into how Trump communicated, um, where he was, I think, able to successfully see through some of Trump's more crazy statements into what his real goals were. Um, and I think that made him, he p- kind of plugged a hole in the conversation around like, you know, mind reading Trump. Um, and maybe he went too far on that sometimes, but in, in any event, he's been um, a, a political and cultural commentator for a long time. He has nuanced and and sort of politically mixed views on the topic of race, such as supporting reparations and supporting certain aspects of BLM. I think that he's, as a commentator popular on the right, he will 
quite often stake out um, uncharacteristic viewpoints, but defend them, you know, with whatever level of rigor. Um, And and so the other day he said on a live stream, he said um, he made some really inflammatory and to my ear racist comments about essentially, uh, I mean, people can look it up for themselves, but he basically said, you know, I'm done. My, my biggest advice to white people is to just get the hell away from black people. And the reason he said this is because he saw a Rasmussen poll, which found that um, it asked people a question, is it okay to be white? Which is a very strange question. Not even sure really what it means. And apparently, I think, and part of this might explain this mis- misunderstanding. It apparently was a bit of a white supremacist, kind of like the OK symbol thing five years ago. Do, were you aware of this? Apparently, like so white I, white racists would say it's OK to be white, and that would be a slogan. So perhaps some cohort of the black respondents to this poll understand that, and they're like, "No, it's not fucking OK to be white." In that sense. So two things on that. I remember reading an essay years ago by Wesley Yang, maybe five years ago where people put it's okay to be white flyers up on a campus and it created like a campus meltdown. I don't know whether that group was like white supremacist per se. Um, so I, I, I can't speak to that. What I can speak to is I don't think that ever got widespread or popular enough for like a majority or plurality of po- people polled to like know that that's a signal for something. Okay. But beyond that, it's just like a crazy thing to ask someone. It's like, what does that actually mean? It's okay mm. to be white. It's such a provocative and like meaningless sentence. Um, cause, cause what would it mean if it's not okay to be white, that you should stop being white? Well, how does one do what that? Does being right. white mean? I mean, to yeah, be it's not white an action. Like it's to a, be a Karen or to be like, a like white what? or to be a, to identify as white as a, as an important part of your, you know, racial identity or to think that being white is racially salient. Like it could, right. it, it could mean any of those things. Exactly. It's, it's not clear what it means. It's a terrible polling question um, because the results, well, the results you get back may not, may not mean anything specific. Anyway, the point is this Rasmussen poll found that only like 50% roughly of black people said yes and the other for roughly 48% either said like like maybe 20 20% said no and then the rest were like i don't know or like you know gave gave other answers so he took this to mean that quote unquote 50% of people but black people don't think it's okay to be white which is on the in the first place a misreading of the poll because 50% didn't answer no they answered a mix of either no or i don't know or whatever. And then secondly, I think it takes, it doesn't take into account how confusing the question is and meaningless the question is. Um, But anyway, he extrapolated from this Rasmussen poll to say that basically black people constitute an anti-white hate group, that the level of anti-whiteness in the black community is so profound and widespread that my advice to white people is to just stay the hell away from black people. And that's how he put it. And he put it like that without caveat, without anything. Um, And then the next thing he said in that two minute video clip is, look, I've done a lot for the black community in my life, but I'm done. I'm done helping black people. Um, All I, all I do, all, all that happens is I get called a racist. So 
get the hell away from black people and I'm done helping black people. So I, I, I was, um, I was pretty, pretty shocked at these comments. I thought, uh, I thought they were racist. Um, later Scott Adams, I think in an interview a day or two later, he clarified on Hotep Jesus's podcast, um, that actually what, what he meant was this. He really just meant, of course you should be friends with your black neighbor, hire black people, never discriminate against anyone on account of their race, but that he is tired of being as a white guy called a racist whenever he weighs in uh, about uh, race issues. And, and so he, he, the point he retreated to in later interviews was way more defensible. Um, but then he, you know, he gave no apology or any, any indication that there was a difference between the first thing he said and the later things he said. And he basically, I think, I, I think he should have apologized and maybe he has, and I'm not aware, but I don't think so. He should have said something like, look, what I said is not what I meant because, uh, you know, if you heard what I said, you would never think what I really meant was don't discriminate against black people ever mm. associate with black people, hire them, be friends, but I'm tired of being called a racist. What he, re- what he basically said is, look, if you thought what I was saying was racist, then you are captured by the mainstream media. You're not a uh, sophisticated consumer of information. If you thought I meant anything other than don't discriminate against anyone and I'm tired of being called a racist, then you're basically um, like uh, you've been duped, which mm. I thought was really disingenuous. Mm. It's interesting. I mean, he's a person who has always used hyperbole and, uh, you know, is like a student of persuasion. I had him on my last podcast and we released that on this podcast before this whole snafu. So people can go back and listen to it. He has a lot of thoughts about like you leading a good creative life and ambition and, sort of you know kind of like he was very into sort of dale carnegie and kind of all like you know think and grow rich and napoleon hill and like he's he studies language persuasion propaganda that sort of thing so i think he finds ways of articulating things that are going to be maximally inflammatory and vomits out thought experiments in his head uh without thinking about the impact or perhaps with think while thinking about the impact and courting it and he probably thinks there's a kernel of truth, and he would be right in this, that there is a kernel of truth in having a conversation about the danger of racial groups entering hyper-defensive crouches and, and how that can provoke tribal backlashes. And so I think my understanding of the most generous interpretation of what he's saying is if it were the case that one racial group had reached such a position of antagonism towards another that they didn't even think that it was okay to be the other, then the sense, then the other would be justified in rejecting its assistance to that racial group. And nonetheless, and that would, that would then trigger a, a downward spiral of accusations of racism from one group to the other. That's like the meta narrative that I think he is actually provoking. He's actually demonstrating while he's he's misguidedly provoking it but i agree that when you say those words they are just on their face that is a that is racist what i then 
what then just sort of made me exhausted, I was going to say distressed me, but it didn't distress me. I was just like, ugh, was all of the media simply saying that he'd had a, you know, a racist tirade or something like that mm-hmm. and never explaining what, never explaining anything of what I just said so that some cohort of people who hear that he had a racist tirade and didn't even really care about him are going to go back and listen to it and then they're going to go, well, it doesn't sound exactly like a tirade. He's not saying like, ah, those N-words need to get out of here. He's... Mm-hmm. It, we do ourselves a disservice when the mainstream media fails to do the work of explaining why he's mistaken about the points that he's making, he's making, because then regular people just smell a rat when they read articles like this one that I'm just looking at in Al Jazeera. I've just been Googling around. Uh, it's not enough to cancel racists like Scott Adams. Toxic racists must be erased, figuratively speaking, from mainstream culture relegated to the internet's corners and the whole thing doesn't have any explanation of like what you just said all it all it says is that all it says is racist tirade this and racist josh i couldn't even find i couldn't even find a link to the quote-unquote tirade itself in the cnn i had to go (laughs) it's so annoying how the mainstream media reports anything like this because they will just give the their company political line, whether that is the Fox News line or the CNN line, often they will not even link to the primary source. And so I have to take it on on faith, essentially, that this is what happened. And it, it, it's mm. so annoying. It's become a horrible tendency in the mainstream media to not trust the public enough to just give us the link, report the story uh, straight down the middle, and yeah. let us come to our own conclusion. Uh, the only place, and the, this was the BBC. This was uh, so many places. Didn't even didn't even quote him in full in more yeah. than you know a couple of words. The only place I was able to read any context was the LA Times. So congratulations to the LA Times, which had a piece that had some context, but again, no links to the actual thing. But like this Al Jazeera piece simply says, Adam said this on this recently on his popular YouTube channel. Based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Beyond sharing sharing this sickening slice of best advice, Adams repeatedly referred in his diatribe to people who are black as members of a hate group or a racist hate group and said he would no longer help black Americans. That's the entire extent. Right. So they don't, they don't even mention the poll, right? They don't mention the poll. Right. So it's not like he woke up one day and said black people are a hate group. It's According he interpreted to, a poll. To be clear, I think he interpreted that poll poorly. And I think he thinks that too, because what he said... Uh, in follow-up, indicated that he was skeptical of his first interpretation of the poll, of taking it at face value, because he's a pretty usually informed consumer of polls and very skeptical of polling in general, Mm. which is Mm. part of the reason why he predicted Trump's victory. Um, And beyond that, I think one reason the mainstream media doesn't report these things straight is because and and to be clear, the the way Scott put it first, I I was offended by. I thought it was racist, right? Like, he's telling white people to get the hell away from me. I'm a black person. That 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 is a horrible message and one that mm. I would hate for people to actually live by. Um, but he made other points that are legitimate, legitimate uh, conversations that the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about. Um, so like one thing he said is his timeline is filled with uh, videos of black people beating up white people. Um, so this is this is a legitimate thing to talk about in terms of violent violent crime is disproportionately committed by black people, 
But I would challenge him on, on two points. One is, you know, just because something's in your timeline, that may say more about your algorithm than it does about reality. Mm. And secondly, you know, over over ninety percent of of violent crime is same race, right? You, you are far more likely in the abstract to be, you know, beat up by or killed by someone of your own race than than by someone of a different race. The overwhelming majority of the victims of black criminals are black crime victims. So his timeline might have been filled with videos of black people beating up black people or white people mm. beating up white people, but his algorithm obviously is is influenced by a certain narrative. But look, the media doesn't even want to talk about the overproportionality of, of black crime to begin with. The fact that, you know, 50% of the murders are committed by 13% of the population because it's an uncomfortable conversation. And if they engage with it in a down the middle journalistic way, they would not only be addressing his racist comments, they would also be addressing certain uncomfortable facts that they 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 prefer to sweep under the rug. Mm. Coleman, will you, will you answer a few first date questions uh, for our premium uh, subscribers? I like to end with uh, with just some random Rorschach questions. Uh, first thing that comes into your mind, okay? Okay. Uh, what a machine or appliance uh, in your house aggravates you the most? Ooh, my teleprompter. <laughs> Probably. I have a teleprompter for reading things on my podcast. <laughs> and do you have one of those? That, is it, uh, do you, does your foot... Do you have a pedal or is it a, is there a scroller on a mouse? I, I yeah, I scroll on my mouse which kind of looks awkward. I uh it's it's surprisingly difficult to actually read you know several paragraphs in a row without making any mistakes, I find. Mm. Um people don't know that. I mean, I've been a news reader guy, you know, not a news reader, but you know, presenting things on TV. I I've gotten a little bit more shows. respect for those guys. Yeah, it's it is harder than people think. I mean, it's not yeah. a hard once you know how to do it, but it is like riding yeah. a bike. I mean, you, you yeah. need to learn how to do it properly and make it look natural. I mean, you should just do away with it, man. You're such an articulate guy. You you can wing yeah. it. Well, I'm not sure about that. Uh, <laughs> what was your favorite place to go? When you were that was just a little taste of our first date questions, which you'll be able to hear all of if you subscribe to Uncomfortable Conversations. Not just the questions, but of course all of our banter around them, which become a subsequent little episode of themselves. Uh, if you do subscribe, you will not only hear that, but you'll also hear no ads on any episode ever. And you'll get additional content, including opportunities to connect directly with me. You can subscribe at uncomfortableconversations.substack.com or follow the links in uh, the uh, the podcast description. Uh, otherwise, I'll see you next time on Uncomfortable Conversations.